Lord, we are thankful for your kindness to us, Lord. We are truly a blessed people. Lord, not just blessed in the sense of living in a country where there's prosperity, where there's lots of freedom. Uh, Lord, even as we're experiencing this sheltering in place, compared to what other countries are going through, Lord, we have actually uh, had a pretty good ride compared to them. But Lord, we thank you most importantly about the kind of uh, joy that we have because you have sought us out. We are undeserving people, and yet by your grace you have reached down and you breathed life into our souls. And Lord, you have brought us into your family and you have welcomed us and given us, Lord, position as sons. And Lord, we praise you for that. And so, Lord, as we come to this passage, a passage that seems very wordy and technical in many ways, would you give us wisdom to see the heart of what it is that you want us to see? And so, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? And Lord, what we have not, would you give us? And allow me, Lord, just to be a faithful mouthpiece for your text so that your word can come and rest on your people in a way, Lord, that would glorify you. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, let me draw your attention again to this passage. And as you're looking at your text, I want to ask you a few questions. Why do we celebrate some of the very special days that happen during the course of the year? Now, I know you may know the answer to these, but why do we celebrate Christmas? Of course, it's the birth of Jesus, right? But in our culture, it's become so much more than that. Why do we celebrate Easter? Well, even in our culture, that's changed from the resurrection of Jesus Christ to, to eggs and things like that. Why do we celebrate Thanksgiving? Uh, we wonder whether we're going to be able to celebrate that in the years to come with all the kind of changes that are happening in our society. But there's a reason we pause and we remember. We don't just gather to have a meal, although that's nice. There's a history there. There's a reason why we sit down and we celebrate that Thanksgiving meal. What about July 4th? Why do we pause and stop and celebrate on that day? Is it just because of hamburgers and hot dogs and, and uh, you know, kielbasa and potato salad, fireworks? Or is there something behind that that is the reason why we're stopping and we're pausing and we're celebrating? What about Memorial Day? Do we remember what Memorial Day is about? Why it exists? What about Labor Day? Now we could go through more places in the calendar, ask ourselves the question, what does this mean? Why are we doing what we're doing? And friends, it's so easy for society to have special days that lose their meaning and are replaced with other things that eclipse the reason why that day was even set aside. So now as we come to our text, this is the, the end of chapter 11 through chapter 13, verse 16, where we have this whole section on the, the Passover or the 10th plague. All of that's working together here. And what we have here are basically uh, three accounts basically broken down in the following structure. We have the Passover, which is chapter 12 and uh, verses 43 uh, through the end of chapter 12, verse 51. 
Then we have uh, the emphasis on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that's chapter 13, verses 3 through 10. And then we have something a little bit different that's jumping in here that further helps us understand what it is that God desires from us, and it's called the rite of consecration. And that's chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, as well as verses 11 through 16. That's our structure for today. That's how we're going to unpack this text. And this morning, God is giving us further instructions about the manner and the meaning of this yearly meal. He's giving instructions to that second generation who are in the wilderness, anticipating going into the promised land. If you notice in the context, as we read the story, when you get into the land of the Canaanites and the Hivites and all that stuff, right? When you get there. So he's preparing them now for this entry into this land. And he wants to make sure that they remember the way in which this should be carried out, but also the meaning behind it. And so I am calling this really in summary, celebrating the benefits of deliverance. These, these, these celebrations, these feasts, these are all there, not just to have in the moment of the Exodus that certainly were there, and that's what we have been studying, but now they're being laid down to be this yearly celebration. And as they celebrate, they want to celebrate the benefits of that deliverance. What does it mean to them as a people? What is it that God has done in fulfilling His promises? What is it that God has done in demonstrating His power and and, and maintaining that covenant relationship with those who are His own? Well, we're going to see this morning the importance of family. We're going to see the importance of theology. And we're going to see the importance of ownership. But we're also going to see this statement played out. And this kind of summarizes this text. We are one family rooted in theology and set apart by God for His glory. Now, certainly Israel can say that about themselves. This would be a statement that would identify Israel. They're one family. They are rooted in a theology. And they are also set apart by God for His glory. But that can also be said of the church that we are one family, we are rooted in theology, and we are set apart by God for His glory. Well, that's where we're going to get to. We're going to see that unpacked in this text. So let's first of all uh, go to this first section about the Passover, and I'm calling this Embracing God's Faithfulness. Now, the reason I'm using the idea of God's faithfulness, you'll notice there at the end of this section, that God brought them out. This is what God had promised that He would do. If you remember, He heard their cry. He saw what it was they were going through. He was observing the fact that they were in slavery, and He had told them that He would bring them out of that land. And He is faithful to do that. And so as we think about God's promise and His faithfulness, there's some things that we need to recognize. What we have here is a meal, the Passover meal. But what we're going to find here is that there is both unity and exclusion. There is unity, first of all, because this is a family meal. 
Notice verse 46. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And here we have four instructions here that focus on this family meal and focus on unity. First of all, there's one lamb per house. If you remember, that meant that, that you were to invite people, you were to enjoy fellowship in order to eat that lamb together. That, that lamb was chosen based on the size of the people in the household. And if you were a small household, you were encouraged to join yourself to another household, and that households were encouraged to invite people then. This is part of the, di the dynamic of fellowship. Secondly, the lamb um, must stay in the house. So that means there's no doggy bags. I know some of you would be really disappointed with that. Uh, there's no kind of grabbing and going. Uh, this was not to be some kind of isolated spirituality. Another person who's basically saying, hey, I can worship God in my own way at home by myself. Friends, that is foreign to Scripture. That's true of, 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 of the Israelites. It's also true of the church. It's foreign, this independent, individualistic kind of spirituality. That is not what is happening here. We are to be gathering with others. Third, no broken bones. Well, this prevents then parts of the lamb from being removed from the house. And of course, this points forward to what we see happen to Jesus on the cross. If you remember John chapter 19, verse 33, it tells us specifically that when the soldiers came to break the legs of, the, uh, of them who were hanging on the cross, that they saw that Jesus was already dead, and so they didn't do it. So there's no broken bones. Then also, everyone in the community is to participate. This is a time for the whole congregation of Israel. And friends, this was a time of congregational and family unity, celebrated at the same time for the same purpose. You know, as I was reading through this, and as we've been reading through just the, the whole plague narrative, and we have been going through a time of, of uh, isolation, so to speak, sheltering in place, one of the things that just kind of jumped out to me from this text is you have the congregation of Israel, that means all of them, gathered in households. And what we are doing today is gathering as Gateway Bible Church, as a whole congregation in households. We're gathered together, but we're also huddled together in our households, in our homes, and especially in light of celebrating the Lord's Supper. Yes, it would be wonderful if we could gather together all as one, but we are gathering together. And we're gathering together in these households to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Now, isn't it interesting that when God wants to describe fellowship between himself and his people, he talks about food. Even though when we take communion, it's just a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice, it is considered, it is described as a meal. It is to symbolize the feast. And we often joke about the fact that when Christians get together, that all they do is eat. Now, that's not good necessarily, but it is biblical, okay? So we got to make sure we understand that when we get together and we eat well, 
We are being biblical, but you don't want to be too biblical if you know what I'm saying, right? So this gathering together for the Passover meal is a prototype of the Lord's Supper to come. It's a sign of fellowship and relationship as well as an opportunity to be spiritually nourished and strengthened. Here's how Paul describes it. And I'm reading 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. See, there's this unity that happens when we come together and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. There's a unity that happened in Israel when they gathered for the Passover meal. But when we gather for the Lord's Supper, although we may be in diverse places this morning, we are gathering together, uniting together around these elements. Now, the amazing thing about the church, friends, is that it is a gathering of people from all walks of life who are really different in many ways and would not typically be hanging together. We may not all have the same interests. We may not all uh, ha- we may have completely different hobbies and, and passions. We may have different political views. We may raise our children in different ways with, within the boundary of Scripture. We may be white-collar or blue-collar. We may like local sports teams or lame teams from other regions of the country and our state. But we're not gathering because of those things. We gather because we have been radically changed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what draws us together. That's what unifies us as a church. So the beautiful reality is that there is wonderful diversity in the unity of God's church. Now friends, hear this. The gospel and the church are meant to be the great levelers. We can have an older, seasoned executive at one of the dot-coms in the Silicon Valley sitting in a Bible study with a financially strapped warehouse worker who's working in the same company, and they sit in a Bible study together as equals. Why? Because they're there because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're part of the body of Christ. They're part of the family of God. And in Scripture, we're told that the church is brought together, men and women, rich and poor, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. There's equality, there's unity, there's diversity in the church, and it's a beautiful thing. Now, certainly there's going to be times when these social distinctions cause some conflict or problems, but all of those things find their solution in the gospel. They find their solution when we come face to face with what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. You see, we all come to the place where we recognize that we were once spiritually slaves. But because of Christ, we have now been set free. This is who we are. And the one place, the one celebration that screams unity with diversity is when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So friends, there's this wonderful unity, this family meal that was true with the Passover, but it's also true with the Lord's 
Supper. But there's also then not only unity, but there is distinction. This is an exclusive meal. I want you to notice in verses 43 through 49 the different types of people that are identified who are not specifically part of the congregation of Israel. First of all, you have the foreigner. This is the the outsider. They may be present at the time of the Passover, but they are not part of the congregation of Israel. And so they are not to eat the Passover meal. Now, I want you to pause and I want you to think, what's being spoken of here is not the actual moment of the first Passover, but looking down the road as to when they, as they enter into the land, as they celebrate this in the future, these are the realities that they're going to be living with. There are going to be people who are outsiders who will be present. They're not part of the congregation of Israel, and so they are not to eat the Passover meal. Why? Because it is an exclusive meal. Then there's the slave, verse 44, a slave who wants to be marked out as belonging to the household of Israel can eat the meal by means of his circumcision. So there needs to be then this this mark that identifies him with with the congregation of Israel. Then there's the, the, the temporary resident in verse 45. It says there in the ESV the word foreigner again, but it's actually a different word. And it means a temporary resident. This person is not looking to establish roots but is staying with the congregation of Israel for a short time. So they're just there for a short visit. They are not to eat the Passover meal. Then in verse 45, we have the hired worker. Now this is the the day laborer. It doesn't necessarily have to be someone who is part of the congregation of Israel. There's someone who's outside, who's come in to do some work. If you can think about Matthew 20, where day laborers were hired to work in the vineyard, they receive a day's wage to come in and plant or to reap or to harvest. This is someone who's not part of Israel, but who comes for the day for a season and works. And since they're not part of Israel, they are not to participate in the Passover meal. Then, in verse 48, we have the stranger. This is what we might call a resident alien, right? They have a green card. They are able to to come in, and they're, they're actually there living among the people for a significant amount of time. And if they say, hey, look, these are my people. I'm identifying with these people. This is my home. These are the ones to whom I belong. Then they can participate in the Passover meal. But again, the requirement is circumcision. The identification is by means of that physical expression, circumcision. And that mark then gives them freedom to actually participate in that Passover meal. So what we have here in the celebration of the Passover is that some people who are not Israelites are welcome to come in, while at the same time some are excluded from participation. And the word exclusive is a bad word in our day, but it simply means that this is not a table of common grace, but a table of special grace. See, people don't like boundaries. They don't like being told, hey, you can't do something, or you're not allowed to participate. But God is saying to his people, this meal is for you. 
This meal is exclusive. There are some that can have this meal and participate. There are some that cannot. Now, let's think about this in practical terms. Let's not get all bent out of shape about this. Some of you shop at Costco. You like all the variety of stuff that they have. You like the bulk food. You like to get, you know, just big, huge mountains of chips and all that kind of stuff. Or maybe you like to go on Saturday where you can just walk around and just kind of graze off the different places that are offering you samples. But you cannot just show up to a Costco having never been there before and expect to walk in. Why? Because you have to purchase a membership in order to benefit from all that is in Costco. But if you purchase that membership, all of it is open for you. Now, you still have to pay for it. You still have to you know, go in and get it yourself. The point is you cannot access any of those things except through the payment of a membership. As some of you know, I love to play golf. And there's a golf course near me that's pretty prestigious. It's called Stonebray Country Club. It's actually the closest golf course to my home. And it's a golf course that hosts some very important tournaments. In fact, a few years ago, uh, my sons, Gavin and Adam, went to see Stephen Curry playing a pro-am up there, just up the road. But you know what? As much as I want to, I can't play Stonebray Country Club. I'm not allowed to. Why? Because I'm not a paying member. It's an exclusive country club and is not open to the public. In order for me to play, I would have to make the required payment and keep all the required rules and regulations in order to participate or to play on that course. Now friends, the same is true for Christians and for Christianity. You cannot join the club, so to speak, simply because your parents were members. There are no coupons, no Groupons, no Honey or Wikibuys that can get you into the kingdom. No, a payment must be made on your behalf. You may be a good person. You may be a person who gives to charity. You may be the kind of person that stops to help people with flat tires on the freeway. You may have done a lot of nice things, but you cannot enter the kingdom of God without a blood price being paid for your sin. You see, unless you are a person whose price has been paid, you are excluded from participating in the Lord's Supper. There is unity, there is also distinction. Now friends, this is important for us because the Lord's Supper is not supposed to be an evangelistic tool to be taken and experienced, but I might want to say an evangelistic tool to be observed. In other words, those who are not part of the kingdom of God are welcome to observe those who are part of the kingdom of God celebrating what Jesus Christ has done for them with his body and with his blood. And that is why we say before we actually serve the Lord's Supper that only those who identify themselves as followers of Jesus Christ can take the elements. And of course, by that we mean that they have been radically changed by the gospel. 
And if someone is not, then they're welcome to stay. They're welcome to observe. And, and we are not offended by that. That honesty is important. You see, the Lord's Supper is an exclusive meal. It's a family meal. But it's also an invitation. So someone who may be an unbeliever who is observing sees what we're doing, sees our passion, sees our joy because of the Lord's Supper. And it is a means by which they are invited now to consider for themselves what Jesus Christ has done and come to Him by faith and believe in the gospel. And friends, if you look at verse 50, as we kind of wrap this section up, it says, all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded. There's, there's obedience going on here. They hear the word of the Lord and they, they are committing to it. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. So here's the first part, embracing God's faithfulness. God has been faithful and he's been faithful to his covenant people. All right, they are, in this case, Israel, and ultimately then as we move to the New Testament, they are his church. Secondly, we want to remember now God's redemption. This is the feast of unleavened bread. This is chapter 13, verses 3 through 10. So we are skipping a couple of verses here purposefully, but here we're talking about this feast of unleavened bread. It's, it's all throughout this text, this emphasis on the unleavened bread and this feast. Now, I don't know what your experience is, friends, but I have often heard people say something like the following. Why are we spending so much time talking about theology when there are people out there who need to hear the truth of the gospel? Or theology just causes division, but it is the gospel that brings us together. Or we just need to spread the love of Christ and not go or get all tangled up in theological arguments. Now, friends, there's an element of truth to what they're saying. It's possible to have a head full of theology and be blinded to practical Christian living. It's possible for people to love theology who also are always arguing their points of theology rather than ministering the Word. So there is a place where theology can get in the way of ministry if we, if we understand it in its right sense. But friends, let me ask you some questions. It's just some basic questions. Who is Jesus? Is he just a man? Is he God? Did he just come as a spirit and so was never actually crucified? What happened on the cross? It'd be a second question. Was there a penal substitutionary atonement where the Son of God died a sacrificial death and bore the sin that we all deserve as a substitute for us? Or was Jesus simply an example of a revolutionary who was willing to die for his cause? Was it a case of divine child abuse? Now, those are just a few questions, friends, but all those questions are questions of theology. We can't just say, well, set aside theology. We just want to share the gospel. Well, which gospel do you want to share? And which Jesus do you want to share? And which mechanism of, of go, moving from, from sin to freedom do you want to share? Or, or do you say, you're not really sinful, therefore you don't really need this freedom? 
You see, this is all theology, friends. Theology matters. It would be foolish to dismiss the importance of theology. That's why our mission statement includes three very important words, knowing. And the idea there is to know theology, not just a heady kind of book theology, but just the truth about who God is. We want to make sure that we're teaching that. But then it's, it's also saying applying. And application here is application of what? Of that theology. So it's theology applied, lived out. And then there's the word proclaiming. And so that theology now is spoken, is proclaimed. It's spoken to our families. It's spoken to our neighbors. It's spoken to those that are outside of the church. Friends, without theology, we don't have the tools to either know or understand the gospel. And certainly we don't have the tools to share the gospel without theology. Now I'm saying all this because to simply talk about God's love without the guardrails of sound theology is to make a claim about God that is distorted, that is dangerous. Because it disfigures what God has actually revealed about himself in his word. And as we have worked through the book of Exodus, we have encountered a number of theological ideas or phrases or concepts that are central to understanding what the gospel is and what it is not. Words like sin, slavery, hatred, rescue, judgment, hardness, mercy, kindness, wrath, those are just to name a few. But here, in this passage, the emphasis is on God's redemption. Notice how many times the expression, the Lord brought you out, is mentioned. Look at verse 3. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. Verse 4. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. Verse 5, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, the Lord brings you into that land. Verse 9, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. These are all expressions that point to God's deliverance, to God's redemption of Israel. And so now, as God focuses on observing the Feast of Unleavened Bread, God is calling on His children to remember His redemption. And what are they to remember? Well, there's a few things that are noted here in the text. First of all, remember your slavery or your enslavement. Verse 3, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you that came out uh, from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's an interesting expression, isn't it? You know, in in a city, oftentimes there would be a house where where slaves would be kept for the people that were, you know, in the city. And during the day or whenever they were needed, that's where they would go from to, to do their work. They would go back to a slave house. But I think the picture has more to do with the fact of, of Israel as a whole. They were dwelling in someone else's land in one particular area of that land, but they were slaves. They were in bondage to the people of Israel. So they were like slaves serving in the house 
of Egypt. So remember that slavery. Remember what you once were. Secondly, remember the power of the Lord as that verse continues. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. It wasn't Moses' brilliance that did it. It wasn't Aaron's supporting role that brought about Israel's deliverance, but it was God's strong hand, His power displayed in the plagues and in the fulfillment of His promises. Each one was a drumbeat that echoed God's mighty power. Again, remember that you were brought out. And here's the point I think that I want to just draw us to in this section. The point is that when the Lord brings you into the land of Canaan, that you need to remember that the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Oftentimes when we get to our destination, we forget where we've come from. So when you go into Canaan, don't forget that you left Egypt. The next one, remember the day. There's a particular day, Abib. In a week or so, we're going to be celebrating Independence Day, a day when we look back at our American history and celebrate our independence from British rule, what we would consider to be a tyrannical rule at that point in time. And on that day, we do things to remember the freedom that we now have because of those great sacrifices. And we tell our children that this great nation, although imperfect, is a nation built upon Judeo-Christian conviction and sacrifice, and that it is an honor to live in this nation because of the convictions and actions of those people so many years ago. Now, I've had the privilege of not only living in other places around the world, but traveling a little bit. And I can just tell you, friends, that our country is, is a wonderful country, even with all its flaws. It is, it's a great nation. There are so many other places out there that might boast some things, but they're not like this country. I'm just saying I have the privilege to live in this country, but I've been to other places where it's not like that, where there is trouble, where there is difficulty. And yet we live in a country where we celebrate on a day our independence. Well, in, the, in a similar way, our worship is always a response to what God has already done. The Passover lamb was sacrificed in order for God to pass over Israel and deliver His people. And because of what He has already done, we can look forward now to what God has promised, expecting Him to do what He says He will do. So as He's saying basically to the Israelites, look, when you get into Canaan, you're going to celebrate this. You want to remember this. This is a day that you set aside to keep this before you. And that kind of moves into the next one, and that is this, remember the meaning. As we talked about, it's so easy for the meaning to be lost. So the meaning of the, the, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is to be passed these subsequent generations. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Now, what's, what's interesting here is that Moses or God through Moses is instructing the people not to kind of give a general answer, but to give a personal answer. Look at it. It is because of what the Lord did for us 
No, as a father, you're telling your sons, this is what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So friends, there's something personal going on here. There's something individual, something specific that is taking place. Though I am part of the multitude of, of, of the people of Israel, so to speak, this father has a personal benefit from this. He's not just absorbed in the Borg of of Israel, so to speak. He is an individual who recognizes that he is the recipient of God's kindness and grace and deliverance. This is what the Lord did for me. And friends, that is also true for us as Christians. We should be doing the same thing. We might be 50 generations removed from the Lord Jesus Christ, but what the Lord did, he did for me personally. He didn't just do for us. He did for me. He changed my life. He drew me to himself, right? He extended grace to me, a person who didn't deserve it. He pulled me out of that bondage and set me free. So friends, there's there's, there's a personal dynamic that as parents, we communicate to our family, to our children, to others about the meaning then, not just at the Passover, as we flash forward to the Lord's Supper. As I'm celebrating the Lord's Supper, I am testifying to all the people in the room or to the, the congregation of the church that this is something that happened to me. And I am joining now with others that are saying the same thing. And then, remember God's work of redemption. The Lord brought you out. So when we go out into the world, we are to look at the world around us and we're to constantly remember that we are redeemed people. This is what he's saying to Israel. You are redeemed people. You are my people, but you are a redeemed people. These are things that happen to you. And so they need to be before your eyes. They need to be on your hands. They need to be in your mouth. You should be talking about them. You should be thinking about them. They should be part of the framework of how you view the world. So our redemption is to serve as a sign and a reminder. Now, friends, this is important for us because we must understand that theology matters. It is theology that drives how people think and live. It's it's theology that drives how you think and live. So friends, theology matters, and it it has bearing on everything you do. 9-11 happened because there were a group of people that happened to be Muslim driven by a theology to do what they did. Now, you might rightly say, this is radical Islam, I understand. The point is, it was their theology that drove them to act and behave in the way they did. Antifa right now is digging its sword into the side of the United States of America, and it has a theology that's driving it. And it's a theology that permeates all it seeks to accomplish. The LGBTQ movement is driven by its own theology. Hitler functioned with a theology. Stalin functioned with a theology. But it was a theology that said that God doesn't exist. Black Lives Matter, as an official organization, functions by a Marxist theology. Just read the documentation on their website. You will see it very clearly there. 
White supremacy functions with an Aryan race theology. Oprah Winfrey lives by a theology. LeBron James functions with a theology. Tim Tebow functions with a theology. Donald Trump is driven by a theology. We're all driven by theology. But the question isn't, does theology matter? The question is, what is your theology and how does it drive what you do? Is your theology rightly rooted in the text of God's Word? I, I crafted that sentence very carefully. Is your theology rightly rooted in the text of God's Word? I could read that list again and add more people to it, and probably 90% of the people on that list would somehow use the Bible to reinforce what they are doing. And we cannot be duped by people who simply pick up the Bible and pick and choose some verses here or twist its meaning to accomplish their own ends. So the question is, is your theology rightly rooted in the text of God's Word? Or has it been influenced by the myriad of ungodly thinking and ideologies and frameworks that come from outside of God's Word from those that are unbelievers? From the second generation of Israelites will eventually cross over into the land of Canaan where they will conquer much of the land. And when they settle in the land, they will turn soft. They will eventually run after the gods of pagan nations. They will behave like those pagan nations. They will turn away from Yahweh. They will forget their redemption. Friends, please don't ever say theology doesn't matter. It matters to God. It mattered to Israel. And it matters to us, to we who are followers of Christ. Without theology, we are lost and we are without hope. You see, already we've seen we are one church, exclusive rooted in a theology, a theology of redemption. But now, we need to recognize the rite of consecration, and we need to acknowledge God's ownership. The Lord said to Moses, this is verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13, the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whether uh, whatever is first open, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is what? Is mine. All right? It belongs to the Lord. Verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. Again, set apart to the Lord. Why? It belongs to him. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey uh, you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem. Let's think about this word consecrate. It means to devote, it means to sacrifice or belong to someone. 
Here the emphasis is that every firstborn male belongs to God. So the rite of consecration is that God's people must give the firstborn, in particular the firstborn male, what belongs to God by means of sacrifice or redemption. Because it belongs to God, it is consecrated, it is devoted to or set apart to the Lord. Why? Because it belongs to God. All right? So now the question is, consecrate what? And, and we're given three illustrations here um, to kind of help us understand. The first one is all the firstborn of, of your animals that are males. So we're talking here about the animals that are part of the, the sacrificial flock, so to speak. So we're talking about you know sheep. We're talking about goats. They belong to the Lord. They are clean. So the firstborn males are to be sacrificed. Secondly, all the firstborn donkeys, they belong to the Lord. You might say, that's kind of strange. Why would he bring donkeys up? It just kind of hits you strange in this passage. Not only that, why would you break the neck of a donkey? Well, we have to back up other portions of Scripture, in particular Numbers 18, 15 through 17, give us some understanding. The donkey is considered a beast of burden, therefore it is unclean. It's not the kind of animal that we typically sacrifice and eat. Therefore, when the firstborn male, that is a donkey, is born, you have two options. Either ransom that, another lamb would be sacrificed as a payment for that donkey, or if for some reason you couldn't do that or didn't want to do that, you would break the neck of that donkey and bring about then um, its, its death. Why? Because it belonged to the Lord. Now, these might seem to be extreme. But remember, this all goes back to that tenth plague. God says, look, I protected you. I protected your firstborn, male and beast. But that didn't happen to Egypt. Their firstborn died. And so to remind you of my deliverance, to remind you of my faithfulness to you. This is what I require. I require a sacrifice of blood. I require a payment. I require um, a ransom be paid. And of course, the third group would be um, would be the all the firstborn male children. You must redeem. Obviously, the male children would not be executed. They would not be sacrificed. There would be a substitute. There would be a lamb that was chosen to replace them, an animal must be sacrificed then in the place of that firstborn male. But the whole point here is that we belong to God. Now what is important to notice is that the Feast of Unleavened Bread coincided with the spring and barley harvest, which also coincided with the animal birthing season that happened during uh, the spring. Isn't it interesting that there is a rhythm to the animal birthing seasons, right? In the spring is when lambs and goats are born. It's when there's plenty of grass for them to feed on. This is not true of mankind. I mean, as a pastor, I don't all of a sudden in months of June, July, and August have all these baby dedications happening because all these births have taken place. No, it's different. But in the animal world, there seems to be a rhythm of these things. Secondly, also this passage teaches that children are not to be sacrificed. Though the firstborn males are to be consecrated to the Lord, they must be 
redeemed. Now you might be asking yourself, who in the world would have thought of the sacrifice of a child? Well, the answer to that question would be the Canaanites. When you go into the land of Canaan, see what's going on here. The Canaanites practiced Molech worship, where the firstborn male child was burned alive in a sacrifice to Molech in order to ensure further fruitfulness. So here it is being made very clear that this is not to be done. Unlike Molech worship, the God of Israel required a sacrifice by means of redemption, the sacrifice is a lamb as a substitute. So we make the connection then in verse 11 when it says, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites. So you're not to act or behave like the Canaanites, but to redeem the firstborn with a substitute sacrifice, a lamb or a goat. And then in verse 15, the rationale for the redemption is supplied to the father, and here is what you are to say to your son. Verse 14 following. And when in the time uh, to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us up out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem." So the Lord killed Egyptians firstborn, both man and beast, and he spared Israel's firstborn, both man and beast. How? By the blood of the Passover lamb. So with that in mind, we recognize that this act of giving over those firstborn beasts and giving over Israel's firstborn sons is to serve as a sign of the Lord and his mighty deliverance. And every time a lamb is sacrificed as the firstborn, as a substitute for the firstborn, it is a sign to remember the Lord's deliverance of his people. Now this expression we find in verse 16, we've seen before in verse 9, I didn't talk about it there, but it says, it shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. This is not supposed to be taken literally, although the Second Temple Jews moved now to, to make it literal, and they created these things called phylacteries. We would wear them around their wrist with verses of Scripture around their head, little box, and it had verses of Scripture in them. But they, they took it literally, but it's not supposed to be taken literally. It's, a, it's a, a metaphor basically saying this truth, your redemption, needs to be in the forefront of your thinking and your life. It should be the lens by which you are looking at things and by which you are living out your life. It is much like we read in Romans 12 where Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual form of worship. He's not saying go and kill yourself. He's saying live your life as a sacrifice. Basically saying you belong to God, so live like you belong to God. Friends, you and I would not be here if it were not for his redemption, especially the firstborn males. We belong to God. He owns us. And because that is true, we recognize then that we have a stewardship to God. And so we have a stewardship 
that we must now live out by living our lives according to His Word. He's given us, by virtue of His redemption, a stewardship to live our lives for His glory. And that's why even as, as Albert began our time this morning by mentioning this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul reminds us that we're bought with a price, we're not our own, and we are to glorify God with our lives. Now, I just want to draw our attention, having gone through this passage now in Exodus 12 and 13, I want, to, I want us to move now to the New Testament. And I want us to think a little bit as we fly over the New Testament. This is by no means going to be exhaustive, but I want you to hear how what we're reading in Exodus 12 or 11 through 13 is the language of and the framework for Jesus Christ. It's, it's the language of the apostles. It's the language of the Gospels. So let's begin here in Luke chapter 2 and verse 21 and following. This is at his birth. Jesus is consecrated. First of all, we'll notice in Luke chapter 2, if you want to turn there, we can just, there's a few things we want to see here. Verse 21, and at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus and given by an, uh, an, the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So he, he, he followed through with this mark of circumcision that identified him now with the people of God. Then verse 22, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This is the consecration. And verse 23 connects it now to Exodus, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, All right, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. And go back in the law, if you couldn't afford a lamb, this is what you would make a payment for. It does indicate that Moses, sorry, <laughs> Joseph and Mary were actually poor. And then you have Simeon, who basically sings a song of celebration when he encounters this one. He's been waiting for the consolation of Israel, we're told. In verse 29, it says, Now, uh, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, your deliverance, your redemption that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. But then we see Jesus during his ministry. There's a few things, and these are passages you know very, very well. At the beginning of his ministry, there's John 1.29, where John the Baptist comes and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the middle of his ministry, as Jesus has, been, uh, has told his disciples three times about the fact that he had to go to Jerusalem, he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That word ransom basically has the idea that describes the payment necessary for redemption. And then again, at the end of his ministry, he is with the disciples up in the Passover or celebrating the Passover in the upper room. And he transitions from the Passover and institutes a new ordinance, uh, ordinance called the Lord's Supper. And in that ordinance, he says, he picks up some bread and he says, take, eat, this is my body. 
He passes around the wine and he says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. So at his birth, during his ministry, but also after his departure. So this is after he's gone, after he's resurrected and ascended. Here's what we have, 1 Corinthians 11. We know this, we read this when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul affirms some things now. He says, uh, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the, the Lord on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I mean, you hear the language, you hear the same, the, 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 the context drawing your attention back to this Passover meal, the language that we're seeing here in Exodus 11, 12, and 13, now brought here into the New Testament. Albert earlier mentioned this passage, Acts 20 and verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. One church rooted in theology that is redemption, right? Now, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. Here we have heaven. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now friends, do we see how Exodus 11, 12, and 13 just pushes us to the place where we see how Jesus fits right in there as the ultimate Passover lamb. And by virtue of what he has done, he's instituted now this new celebration called the Lord's Supper. So now just bringing things to a close, drawing our attention, I want to focus in on that statement I began with. We are one family rooted in redemption, set apart by God for his glory. You see that? One family rooted in redemption, there's the theology, set apart by God for His glory. We are owned by Him. So all three of these emphases in this passage are, are spilling over into the Lord's Supper. So here's what we can learn about the Lord's Supper. Five things just to bring things to a close. The Lord's Supper, first of all, is a time for the body of Christ to unite. We come together as the body of Christ, what we do in the Lord's Supper is unique, but it's also exclusive, but it's celebrated by God's people around the world. It's also a time for the body of Christ to reflect, to reflect on their bondage. We talk about our bondage in Egypt. We, that's, that's a metaphor to talk about our life before Christ. what it was like to, to be in that bondage. We, we pause, we, and we need to remind ourselves of where we have come from so that we can do the next thing, and that is to remember, and by remember here, we remember what it is that Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, where we've come from, what Jesus did. 
Fourth, it's a time also for the body of Christ to instruct. So as you're going home from church, or maybe after the service today, your children say to you, Dad, so Dad, what's going on here with the Lord's Supper? What does it all mean? Part of your role, Dad, part of your role, Mom, is to help your children understand the significance and the importance of what Christ has done for for your children, for you, on the cross, to walk them through it and to not forget it. And it's also a time to commit. Commit to what? Commit to obedience. You see, when we, we get to the place when we're reminded of who we once were and what Jesus Christ has done, it's a reminder then for us to say, yes, I need to press on for God's glory in such a way that I am living by what He says and what He desires. So it's a commitment ultimately to live my life for His glory. Friends, these are all things that we need to be thinking about as we celebrate the Lord's table. I'm going to pray here, and as I pray, I'm going to prepare us for the celebration of the Lord's table. And uh, as I mentioned, you may be watching, but you may not be a follower of Christ. And um, I can't be there to control things, but I'm going to ask you out of respect to refrain from participation. This is an exclusive family meal of people who have been redeemed and are God's possession, celebrating that redemption. Jesus Christ giving of his body, shedding his blood as that sacrifice once for all. So friends, as we go to prayer, let's be mindful of that, and then we can celebrate the Lord's table together. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, this passage we've studied today is full of all sorts of different instruction, and it seems somewhat tedious. And yet, as we step back and we see what it is you're doing, identifying the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Rite of of, of Consecration, and Lord, the emphases in those passages, Lord, that we are one family, that theology matters, in particular the theology of redemption, and that as a result of that redemption and because of, of who you are and your covenant, that we are your possession. Lord, those things are, are wonderful, magnificent truths. But Lord, they're not just true about Israel, but they looked forward to what we know to be true about what Jesus Christ has done for us. So Lord, now help us to realize as we celebrate the Lord's Supper that what we're celebrating, yes, goes back to your words, the words of of Jesus in the upper room to the disciple, but but they go back uh, to that, that night and that time when Israel was gathered together, huddled in households, celebrating by means of the congregation, um, this wonderful reality of their salvation. Help us, Lord, now as we do this together. In your precious name, amen.